do make sure you can see that passage in front of you. Um, and let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you, as Ben has already expressed this evening, your word uh, is where our confidence lies. Father, that your words are the words of life. Uh, and so we pray this evening that you would help us to humbly sit under it and to have our confidence in it. For Jesus' name's sake we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever asked or been asked the question, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Maybe you've been in a heated Brexit debate recently. Uh, Maybe you've been watching the Rugby World Cup. Uh, Maybe, uh, like me, you're still trying to work out whether DAF is English or Welsh. uh, And you want to ask, whose side are you on? It's a familiar question, isn't it? It's a familiar question, and it's the question that lies at the heart of our passage this evening. Uh, We can see it there at at the end of chapter 5. End of chapter 5, Joshua and the Israelites have made camp near Jericho. We've we've been tracking with them, haven't we? And now they've reached the edge of Jericho. And as they prepare for their first battle, their first encounter with the enemy, Joshua comes face to face with a man he doesn't know. Look at verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? It's a pretty sensible question, isn't it? You're about to go into battle and suddenly you meet a strange man with a drawn sword. And so you ask, whose side are you on? Are you for us or are you against us? But look at the man's answer in verse 14. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see, Joshua is asking the wrong question. When confronted with this divine warrior, this commander of the Lord's army, the question Joshua should be asking is not whose side are you on, but whose side am I on? The big question of chapter 5 and 6 is not whether God is on Joshua's side, but whether Joshua is on God's side. Because chapter 6 is going to show us there are only two sides. We are either with God or we're against him. We're either following him or we face him. So first let's think about what it means to follow the Lord. Chapter 6 verse 1 sets the scene for us. It says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. The city is shut And so all Joshua can see across the plains of Jericho are the imposing, impenetrable walls of the city standing before him. But then in verse 2 we read, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. The Lord says to Joshua as he looks at those walls, Joshua, the battle is won. I've already done it. 
In fact, the outcome is so certain. Did you see that God speaks as though it's already happened? See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, Joshua. And so the Lord assures Joshua, well, the outcome is certain. And then in verse 3, he tells him what he must do next. Verse 3, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. We might be familiar with the story uh, of the walls of Jericho, but, but this isn't really a, a familiar, a, a common military strategy, is it? Every, seven day, every day for seven days, Joshua is to get his entire army ready, dressed for battle, and then he's to take them for a walk, to walk around the city. And you can imagine him kind of going up to his offices, can't you, to try and explain the plan. It would have seemed odd. It would have seemed, frankly, a bit ridiculous. Joshua, how is going for a stroll going to do anything? How is going for a walk going to win a battle, Joshua? Explain this to us. But that's the point, isn't it? As we keep on seeing in this book of Joshua, Joshua and the Israelites aren't going to win the battle. It is not Joshua and it is not the Israelites who will bring down the walls of Jericho, despite what the song says. It's the Lord. Verse 2, it is the Lord who will deliver Jericho into Joshua's hands. And so, just as we saw a few weeks ago with the the crossing of the Jordan, it is the ark of the Lord that is at the centre of all the action. The ark, if you can remember back, uh, is the symbol of God's presence with his people. In fact, it's so closely tied with the presence of the Lord that in verse 8, if you just look there, chapter 6, verse 8, the author doesn't even mention the ark, but simply says the priests went ahead of the Lord as they marched around the city. The ark is the symbol of God's presence with his people. And once again, just as with the crossing of the Jordan, it is center stage. Look at verse 8. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forwards, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. Three times in those two verses, we're told how noisy the priests are. Do you see that? Verse 8, they were blowing their trumpets. Verse 9, they blew their trumpets. End of verse 9, all this time, their trumpets were sounding. The priests were making a whole lot of noise. But what about the army? What about the soldiers? Verse 10, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. And so here's the entire Israelite army, ready, armed for battle, and they're silent. They silently walk around the city. Why is that? Well, because all the action, all the focus is on the ark. The people are ready for battle, but what do they do? 
Nothing. They do nothing. Their swords stay by their sides. They do nothing but silently follow the ark. Because this is the Lord's battle. This is not their battle. They are to simply follow the Lord. I think that also explains all the sevens in this passage. Did you notice them? Seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days, seven times. Why all the sevens? Well, again, it's because in the Bible, the number seven is symbolic of perfection, of completeness. It's symbolic of God. And so this whole thing, the marching, the trumpets, the ark, it's all one big picture to show that Joshua did not win the battle of Jericho. The Lord did. God was not on their side as they went into battle. They were on his side. All the way through we see, don't we, that Joshua and the people, they obediently follow the Lord. They follow his commands. And so we don't read about how Joshua suggested a few tweaks to the plan. We don't read about how Joshua came up with a better strategy along with his officers. No, no, they simply follow what the Lord has commanded them to do. Because that's what it means to follow the Lord, isn't it? When we become Christians, we don't carry on with our own plans. It's not that we have all of our, our life ambitions and our life goals, and then when we become a Christian, God sort of just gets on board with what we were doing and, and, and we carry on. No, no, God is not on our side. It's not God's job to bless our plans or to give us what we want. No, when you become a Christian, you abandon your plans. You abandon them and you follow the Lord. That's what Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, And follow me. God doesn't join your side. You join God's side. You trust his plans. You obey his commands. And you enjoy his victory. Uh, Not a victory over a city or an army. No, if we follow the Lord, we enjoy a victory over a far greater enemy. uh, The enemy of sin and death. You see, on the cross, the Lord Jesus, our captain, our warrior, he defeated those enemies for us. And so as we saw before the summer in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for those who follow the Lord Jesus, the battle is already won. The battle is won and the victory will one day be complete. One day our victorious king will return and as we've just sung, every knee will bow before him. Every knee will bow and sin and death will be no more. And so what does it mean to follow the Lord? What does it mean for for Ben and Emily to follow the Lord into Sweden? Well, it means having confidence. It means having confidence not in ourselves, not in our strength or our ability or our plans, 
but having confidence in the Lord. Confidence in his strength and his ability and his plans and his faithfulness. Confident that he will keep his promises. That's what happened in Jericho, isn't it? Joshua and the people, they followed the Lord, they obeyed his commands, and look at the result, verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. The people followed, and the Lord delivered, just as he said he would. But then we read verse 21. Verse 21, just look there. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. There's no getting around the fact that verse 21 is a hard verse. It's not the kind of verse that you see posted on Instagram or in your children's Bibles, is it? We probably find that a hard verse to read. We might even find it an embarrassing verse to read, a verse that we wish just wasn't in our Bible. So what's going on? Why is it in our Bible? Well, I think it's there to show us what it means to face the Lord. We've seen what it means to follow the Lord, but now we're going to see what it is to face the Lord. Why does God command the destruction of the city and all that are in it? Well, to understand that, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 15. Because in Genesis 15, we see it was to Abraham that God had first promised to give this land. Genesis 15, I'll read it. You can flick back there if you want to. Genesis 15 verse 12 says this. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. The Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. And then if we skip on to verse 16, it says, The Lord says, In the fourth generation your descendants will come back, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, the Amorites were the people living in the promised land. And for at least 400 years before Joshua had arrived, we're told that these people sinned against the Lord. You see, it was God who had given the Amorites, these people, the land they lived in. It was God who had given them their family and their friends and their children and their food. It was God who had made the sun rise and set on them each and every day. It was God who had given them rain for their crops. It was God who gave them the very air they breathed. God had given them everything. But they never thanked him. Never once did they acknowledge his goodness to them. Instead, they worshipped other gods. Instead, they sacrificed food and animals and even their children to blocks of wood and stone. For 400 years, these people rebelled against the God of all the earth. And so for 400 years, God delayed his judgment. 
For 400 years, he gave them the chance to stop, to to turn away from their idolatry and trust in him, the one true God. But they didn't. They didn't. They persisted in their rebellion and they set themselves up as God's enemies. And if God is your enemy, then you will lose The warning of Jericho is that if you're not following the Lord, then you are facing the Lord. If you've chosen to reject God, if you've chosen just to to pay him lip service and continue living life your way with your plans and following what you want to do, then one day you will face him. You'll face his judgment. You'll face his anger. And you will be destroyed. That is not an easy thing to hear, I know. It's not an easy thing to preach. It is hard. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Verse 21 is there to wake us up. To warn us that if you try to face the Lord, you will lose. And maybe you hear that and you think, well, if if that is what God is like, well, how can I believe in him? How can I trust a God like this? And the answer is there for us in verse 17 and verse 22 and verse 25. Because all the way through this story of judgment and destruction, we find also the story of God's grace. Just look at verse 22 with me. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. All of us will one day face the Lord. And if we've, ever, if we've lived our lives rejecting him, then the Bible says we face his judgment. But there is still hope. There is hope for our friends and our family. There is hope for people in Chessington and people in Sweden. There is hope if, like Rahab, we put our faith in the Lord. You see, whilst we might get hung up on verse 21, uh, the destruction, the details of the destruction of Jericho is not actually the emphasis of the passage, is it? It's not where the author spends his time. No, far more time is given to what happens to Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute who we saw a few weeks ago, heard about God's power and then trusted in his mercy. And it's through that trust, through that faith in the Lord, Well, that we can now see that Rahab is saved. Verse 25, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. You see, Rahab did what any one of her Canaanite neighbors could have done. She put her faith in the Lord. As the Israelite army approached the city walls, she gathered her family into her home and she did the only thing she could do. She trusted in the Lord's mercy. You see, verse 21 describes the utter destruction of God's judgment. Nothing and no one can withstand it. 
But in verse 22, after the city walls have fallen, one section, one house remains standing. And inside that house are the people who have trusted in the Lord. And so these chapters in Joshua, they, they might well have raised all sorts of questions for you. We're going to come back to some of those questions over the next few weeks. There's more to come. But I hope you can see that whatever questions you might have, one thing we can be sure of is that the God of the Bible, the God we worship, is a God of mercy and grace. That despite people's persistent rebellion and sin, despite our persistent rebellion and sin, God's desire is not our destruction, but that we would be saved. We can see that in Rahab but we can see it all the more in Christ. As we've seen in our morning services, God's grace, his love, his desire for people to be saved, it's ultimately seen in the sending of his son. Those famous words that we've looked at a few weeks ago, John chapter 3.16 say this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How do you know you can trust God? How do you know he's not some sort of vindictive, mean-tempered monster? Because he sent his only son for us. His only son who willingly took the punishment we deserve. His son who on the cross was destroyed in our place. And how do you know whose side you're on? How do you know whether you're following or facing the Lord? Well, do you believe in God's Son? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus? Because if you have, well, then John says you will not perish. You will not be destroyed like the people of Jericho. But instead you have eternal life. Instead you will live as one of God's people. Forgiven. Restored. And following the Lord Jesus. Confident in him. Now. Today. And for all eternity. Let's pray that we be people who follow and have faith in the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the world in the light of your word. Help us to see the reality that there are only two sides, that we are either following you or facing you. Father, please tonight help us be sure of which side we are on. Be sure that we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus in all that he has done for us. And Father, as we think beyond ourselves, as we think to people that we know that don't know you, that are facing you, we pray that you would give us a passion, a desire to bring them to the Lord Jesus, like we heard this morning, to bring them to the saviour of the world, the one who can move them from facing your destruction, facing your judgment, to following you and being one of your people. Father, please help us do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.